and welcome back to the show. You're listening to Season 2, and this is Episode 16, and this is the History of Religions and Their Gods. Did I make your car shake? And let me ask you this. Did I tickle your taints? I hope so. But I am your host. I am the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast, as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and their origins. Oh my! But hey, this show is a compilation of essays and papers and research material from leading scholars and professors all around this world, as well as authors of popular books on the subject, such as Carrier and Dennis MacDonald and Bart Herman. But the scope of this show is to analyze and compare history through the scope of archaeology, logic, documentation to biblical accounts that are found in the Old and the New Testament. And it's very interesting to see what people hold as absolute capital T truths from the Bible once they actually compare the evidence side by side. But at the end of the day, folks, that's all for you guys to decide, not me. I'm just a bringer of good news. That's all. This is my gospel. But hey, today is June 18th. It's 2021. And this episode is entitled, Can We Trust the Book of Acts as History? Well, it certainly does seem like they try to pass itself off as a historical document, so we shall analyze it and we're all going to find out, right? And hopefully I can wrap it up within an hour and a half, maybe two hour episode here. But hey, thanks for listening, and please share it with friends if you think they would enjoy this show as well. And help spread that love, right? And if you give me an hour, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So hey everybody, if you are ready for this excellent adventure to begin... Hop in or just simply, simply tune in and let's go find Jesus, everybody. Let's go find him. As the Christian Gospels placed the crucifixion narrative right around 30 to 35 of the Common Era, while the Jewish Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, places it around 90 BCE, 100 years earlier. Or some say during the reign of Claudius, 41 to 54 CE, and some say that he was actually executed by Herod, not Pilate at all. And others say he was born and died in the reign of Alexander Janius, 103 to 76 BCE. Now, 4th century Christian scholar Epiphanius actually helps confirm this for us because he provides a timetable that completely contradicts the one provided to us in the canonical Gospels. This is confirmed in the Talmud as well. Epiphanius compiled an extensive dossier on all of the heresies that he could think of, that he's aware of, that he knew of, and he called it the Panarion, P-A-N-A-R-I-O-N. And one of these heresies that he talks about, he talks about a group of Jews called Nazorians, right? Sounds like it comes from Nazareth, right? Who were still a practicing Jews, but confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. But their customs are still in accordance to the laws of the Torah, such as the Ebionites, who we will talk about in later episodes. But this would mean that a sect that descended directly from the original Christian sect founded by Peter, John, and James, the pillars of Galatians 2, mind you, before Paul's innovation, eliminated the observance of the Torah. So these Nazorians were still Torah observant and still called themselves by their original name, 
as seen in Acts 24, verse 5, and in the Jerome letters, 112.13. And the name that they held before the sect we are more familiar with came to be called Christians, as seen in Acts 11.26. This means that the Jews east of the Roman Empire, where the Talmud was compiled, were reacting to this Nazorian sect of Christianity. Now, as one passage declares in the Talmud, when King Janius was killing our rabbis, our Jesus Ben, which means son of, Pariah, and Jesus the Nazarene, escaped to Alexandria, Egypt, until peace was once again restored. Now, of course, this matches Matthew's nativity account, as we reviewed earlier in this um, episode, but this Jesus who was explicitly identified as Jesus the Nazarene, he was condemned for immorality, sorcery, as well as worshiping idols, and he was eventually executed for it. He is executed for practicing magic and leading the people of Israel astray, the Talmud tells us. This Jesus was tried by a Jewish court, not a Roman one, and he was stoned to death on the day before Passover. That's very suspicious to me. Now, for those of you who have a Talmud and you want to pop it open, the references would be Jesus as a sorcerer having disciples. You're going to see that in B, Sanhedrin 43a through B. A frivolous disciple who practices magic and turned to idolatry, Sanhedrin 107b. And then Jesus' execution, B, Sanhedrin 43a through B, in that same section. Now, in Sanhedrin 43a, this particular section, it relates to the trial and the execution of Jesus, as well as his five disciples. Now, in this particular case, Jesus is a sorcerer who has enticed other Jews to apostasy. A herald is sent to call for witnesses in his favor for 40 days before his execution. But no one comes forth, and in the end, he is stoned, and then he's hanged on the eve of Passover. His five disciples, they are named Matai, Nekai, Netzer, Buni, and Toda, and they are tried as well. Now, wordplay is made on each of their names, and they are all executed. It's mentioned that leniency could not be applied because of Jesus' influence within the royal government. Now, Epiphanius, it confirms that some Torah-observant Christians from the original sect of Christianity actually did preach this. So there was some sort of gospel that was circulating somewhere around in the East, but you have to ask, how can the descendants of the original sect of Christianity believe that Jesus lived and died a hundred years before our Gospels say he did, right? One can't imagine how this doctrine would have developed unless there was no actual historical Jesus at all, and a character could be written into history depending on what each sect desired. We talked about multiple sects, dozens of sects of Christianity, and they all could have placed Jesus at different times and places throughout their history. Even in the West, there was not an established date for Jesus. No one could agree on when he was even born. Matthew placing his birth under Herod, while Luke under Curinus, more than 10 years later. And they couldn't agree on what date he was killed either. As surveyed before, you know, fill in certain narratives as they pleased, depending on you know, the message that they wanted to send. 
So exactly how many Jesuses are we talking about? Now, after the four Gospels, there are additional letters that come from Jesus. And one of them comes from the book of Revelation, which purports an extensive hallucination of a celestial Jesus. And it comes to us by some unknown author going by the name of John. As we've seen in other forgeries, such as Isaiah and letters from the Pauline epistles and many more. But the version that we have today dates sometime right around the 150s, perhaps even later, of the Common Era. Other late epistles are John 1 through 3, Jude, as well as James, which all have uncertain authorship, dubious dating, and reliability. All uncertain forgeries to add to enhance the narrative. When, when the church wasn't happy with the message it was originally told, additional stories were told and filtered in. Now, Peter 1 and 2 are regarded as forgeries as stylistically they are way different from any other writing by this original author. However, it is apparent that the writers were aware of other gospel writers and probably knew them as well, therefore not writing independently of each other. Now, in the book of Acts, which is a redaction of Luke, or perhaps even some consider it as a continuation of the book of Luke, and possibly it's given to us sometime around the 140s, so fairly, fairly late, and probably not Luke. But also, it, it could be the same guy if we're assuming that the book of Luke is a little bit later. Now, the Acts of the Apostles is often said to be a work of early Christian history. And although it is poor history, it does reveal vital historical information for us. And we can deduce that Acts was written close to the beginning of the second century, but it was very little known for another century or so. So even though it had been completed, we weren't aware of it for a couple hundred years. But because of some of the information and details that it provides for us, it makes sense of the timing that we're giving it, right around that 140s. Now, this early obscurity has served us well. Why? Because had the book been, you know, better known and more aware to Christian editors, its revealing information might well have attracted more interest from Christian editors, and we might not have actually been able to see what the original author was trying to tell us in this particular book. So we can really see what was happening to Christianity within that first hundred years, or, well, within the, the second century of the church, because the editors didn't get a chance to toil with it yet. So what is this book of Acts anyway? Well, we know that it is a sequel to the synoptic story, beginning where the Gospels, the ones that we're aware of, that were canonized anyway, where they left off. So the Gospels are, in a sense, necessary and primary as a source for this guy. Some would say that the author did not see any Pauline epistles because he certainly mentions none of them. But then again, it is possible that he saw some anyway, but not all. But there is more to Acts than what is derived from these two particular sources. Because there's invention, such as the story of Eucatus, which is plagiarized from Homer's Odyssey. Once again, that seems to be a nice source of information and um, material to you know, create characters for in the Bible. And we see this character in Acts 20. But there's also information that is unique among Christian writing. Certainly very early to us, and perhaps the earliest records that we even have. 
that Jesus, whom you know we read of in the epistles, appeared to be a celestial figure that is only seen through visions and revelations by a select few. Right? We talked about this in earlier episodes. And seemingly resurrected as the story begins, which is consistent with Paul's letters as well as the book of Hebrews. Those who saw him were expecting action as implied by their eschatological beliefs. Right? We know this. The Lord as Messiah would lead all of mankind, those who accepted him, through the last days. But his mission either failed or was indefinitely postponed, perhaps. And Paul was the last to see him in visions. Remember? Now, the story had no end. And, and, and the sighting started to, to peter out. That these, these visions became less and less reported. The believers waited eagerly for, for Jesus to come back and to take them to the, the awaited heaven, to the new temple, as the days would come to an end. But unfortunately, the people would just die disappointed. Family members would watch their loved ones die and, you know, know Jesus. So did they go to hell? But with Paul's, you know, he was anxious to reassure those who feared that they would die before Jesus came back. The apocalyptic Messiah manifested himself to all, as in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. And as a matter of fact, this exact scenario, the Christians were feeling this way, that Jesus was not returning to take them to heaven. <laughs> this is the impetus for the author to write the book of Revelation a hundred years later. Now, the gospel account, on the other hand, has their Jesus resurrected, not at the beginning of the story, but at the end of a prefacing drama inserted before the sightings occurred, giving an account of an early life. Now, the drama ends with death and resurrection, now presented to us as a glorious fulfillment of his mission. Right? The story that had no ending in the Gospels, now in Acts, becomes an ending itself, but of another story altogether. The subsequent eternal waiting was forgotten at first, but later re-entered Christian doctrine as a required vigil rather than disappointment, with the faithful awaiting a parousia at some unspecified future date. Although the resurrection is a common feature between the two categories of writing, skeptical observers have long agreed that the dichotomy between the epistles and the gospels is a close absolute because the epistles were written closest to the time of the supposed events of the Gospels, yet the writers of the epistles and Paul know nothing about them. The Gospels, that is. So when the Gospel story appears to us, obviously a half century later, almost all of the graphic detail, including biographical, historical, and anecdotal, was new and unmentioned by any other earlier writer. Later Gospels, although dependent upon the works of the first evangelist for their storylines, do not become increasingly vague as time and mortality diminishes. It diminishes the inventory of human recollection, right? The human life is like 50 to 55 years old. But rather, they add even larger volumes of detailed information rather than becoming more and more vague, which is a hallmark of legendary development, if anything at all. And then you have the Palestinian apocalyptic believers in their risen Jesus, known to the early writers. 
disappeared with the first century revolt in 66 to 70 CE, with the fall of the Second Temple, remember? But their expectations had been carried out into diaspora by refugees from the persecution of the fourth decade. Perhaps half a century after the sightings, the time, the distance, and the bloody aftermath of the war that stood between a new generation of Greek-speaking diaspora believers and those original visions of the Lord, orphaned sectarians, with no recourse to authoritative religious guidance. Maybe they were the authors of the first gospel. That explains why Mark was written in Greek and why the author pulled from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew Bible for his storylines. For example, the well-accepted concept of Mark and priority means that we don't need Matthew, we don't need Luke to see how the story arose. These, these, later, these later elaborations were only serving to confuse what we should be seeing in Mark's original work and what he understood. The author of Mark composed his work along the same lines as a Homeric epic, so creating an all-time bestseller as we discussed in the previous chapter. It's, it, it hardly needs restating at all that the details of his story, the gospel story, were for the most part completely unknown to the writers anything earlier, Hebrews, the Pauline letters, any of the epistles, whether canonical or otherwise. Now, the book of Acts was written later than the Synoptic Gospels. We know this, of course, uh, obviously reinforcing the gospel story by portraying preparations for the end of the age by those who thought that the Messiah had just arrived as though they thought that he had also just departed. Yet the earlier belief can still be detected in its passages, along with early terminology and probably some unique historical reporting, even if this is misrepresented in order to support the gospel story. But from where did the author, a Gentile in the late first century, obtain unique information about a Jewish sectarian belief half a century earlier? I suggest that he relied partly on a written Azorian source, these are Torah-observant Jews that believe in Jesus from a perspective from the Talmud, that have not survived. This, this suspicion is strengthened by the fact that Acts tells us about a so-called Jerusalem church, which calls it, which calls Nazorians, or the way, occurs nowhere else in the Christian record, canonical or otherwise. Now, that point must be underlined. Because only found in Acts 24, verse 5, it gives us the startling fact that the Greek word Nazorii is a proper name for a religious sect, with no attempt made to connect it to the word Nazareth at all. Although Christian apologists will suggest that the word Nazarios comes from the Hebrew word Nestor, meaning sprout or shoot, as seen in Isaiah 11.1, 1, but they accept without question that it means from Nazareth. This is patently consistent since no lexicon offers a confident explanation for the origins of the name Nazareth, most of them just saying origin unknown. In any case, the etymology of Nazarios is Aramaic anyway. It's not Hebrew, being a Greek-sized form of the word Nestariaia, meaning custodians or keepers, keepers of the law. The equally sectarian Sumerians with their own brand of non-Temple Judaism, named themselves in the same manner, using the Hebrew word Shomerim, which has the same exact meaning. Now, 
only in Acts and half a dozen clear examples, such as chapter 9, verse 2, and 24, verse 14, tells us that these Nazorii referred to their own belief as, with quotations over my head, the way, exactly as the sectarians of the scrolls describe themselves. So in the entire inventory of Christian writings, only Acts, endorsed by the historical records of Josephus and Philo, for example, describes the collective of believers that existed after the resurrection, telling how they were enjoined to sell their belongings and, and give the proceeds towards the support of the community. The almost identical description by Josephus and Philo of such a sect, known to them as the Essenes, leave little doubt that these are two accounts of a single phenomenon. Now, now, certainly, some scholars, such as Robert Eisman, make little or no distinction between the sectarians and the so-called Jerusalem church. Now, Josephus called the members of the commune Essenes, and in Acts they were Nazorians. So, based on Acts 24, verse 5, we can equate Nazorians with Essenism in the era when the commune was first formed. Now, further nomenclature, as noted by Alvar Ellingard, for example, of more obviously self-descriptive terms shared between the early works of the New Testament and the writings of the Essenes include the Church of God, or the Perfect, or the Saints, or the Poor, and the Sons of Light. And even Paul, in particular, uses these terms to refer to the so-called Jerusalem Apostles as seen in Romans 15:26 and Romans uh, I'm sorry and 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 3 Now while the dates of the scrolls extend well into the Herodian era they give no hint that Essenism had recognized the arrival of either the Messiah or his precursor who was foretold as coming to teach the righteousness in preparation for the coming of the Messiah the Nazorian phase of Essenism would have begun when the sightings had actually occurred. But there's no written record of its history at all. So unless I'm correct, and an edited secondhand form exists hidden within the pages of Acts, at the end of the first century, the author of Acts represents the Nazorian apocalyptic experience as consequential upon the gospel story he already knows about. But this morsel of real history does not sit well with the gospel story. The original Markan gospel had a resurrected Jesus who went nowhere at all, presumably remaining on earth to claim his throne, one would believe. The congregants at the time knew no different. The believers described in Acts are preparing actively for his imminent enthronement in an earthly realm not lamenting his departure to sit at God's right hand in the heavenly kingdom? Now, the book of Acts has been described as a work of apologetic historical fiction. But nevertheless, this author, traditionally known as Luke from the Gospels, may have derived some of his material, or source ideas, from earlier traditions, whether it be written or oral. But the oral would be extremely unreliable and wholly unverifiable, right? Really, only one underlying historical source has been confirmed with any probability, and that would be of Josephus, right? Who says nothing about Christ or Christians that wasn't an obvious late-century interpolation or forgery. But Luke simply used Josephus for his background source material, just as Mark did 
and just as Matthew did. All other sources we can discern in Luke are literary, not historical, right? We've covered this already so many times. Those include what may have been a now lost hagiographical fabrication, essentially a rewrite of the Elijah-Elisha narrative found in Old Testament Kings literature, as marked it as well as the later redactions from Matthew, Luke, and John, but now casting Jesus and Paul into the major roles, right? This is where it gets interesting to us, and that is not what we would call a historical account. Its sources are not eyewitnesses or historical memory, but the Old Testament as a literary model and the imagination of the author reworking it to the way that he wants to retell it, how he wants to retell existing stories. Some argue this evident reworking of the king's narrative starts in the Gospel of Luke and continues all the way through Acts 15 indicating that either Luke wove his literary construct into the story or used an underlying source text, a previous gospel, that covered both the acts of Jesus and the acts of the apostle into one book. So Luke either took this source text as his own literary idea and inserted more stories into it, thereby expanding it into two books, using material from Mark and Matthew and perhaps other lost gospels such as Q, and some epistles of Paul, then continued the story from Acts 15 all the way through 28, which may have its own source text, or may have been Luke's own invention. But the remaining sources we can discern are not hypothetical, because we actually have them. For example, we have seen that Luke also reworked tales from Homer, casting them with new characters, giving them new outcomes as it suited him. For example, the whole shipwreck theme of the Odyssey, and Paul shared nautical images as well as vocabulary, the appearance of a goddess or an angel, assuring safety for the crew, the riding of planks, the arrival of a, of a hero on an island among hospitable strangers, or the mistaking of the hero as a god, and the sending him off on his way in a brand new ship. Now, Paul himself says he was shipwrecked three times and at least once spent a day and a night adrift, as seen in 2 Corinthians 11.25. Now, Luke may have been inspired by this remark to invent a story about it or around it, borrowing ideas from other famous shipwreck narratives, you know, including those in Jonah, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. But Acts rewrites Homer several other times as well, changing out the characters and the outcomes in the scenes. Now, as an example of some of these plagiarisms, for example, Paul's resurrection of the fallen Eutychus is based on the story of the fallen Elpenor. You're going to have to look these up on your own. But the visions of Cornelius and Peter are also constructed from a similar tale and narrative about Agamemnon. Paul's farewell at Miletus is constructed from Hector's farewell to Andromache. The Lottery of Matthias is constructed from the Lottery of Ajax. Peter's escape from prison is constructed from Priam's escape from the Achilles. They go on and on and on. So this is character change-out from plagiarized ancient stories, but updated and put into a Christian, Christian outlook, right? So this is not history. This is straight-up, plain-forward plagiarism. The author of Acts, he uses many other literary sources as well. Not just those. 
For example, the prison break in Acts shares the same theme of the famously miraculous prison break found in Bacchae of Euripides. But the source for Acts employs mostly from the Septuagint, the Greek version translated from the Hebrew Bible. Now, for example, while Dennis MacDonald shows the overall structure of the Peter and Cornelius episode, that it's based on a story in Homer, now, Randall Helms has shown that other elements are borrowed from the book of Ezekiel, merging both models into one. Both Peter and Ezekiel see the heavens open up, as in Acts 10 verses 11 compared to Ezekiel 1 1, and both are commanded to eat something in their vision, Acts 10 13 compared to Ezekiel 2 9, and both twice respond to God, by no means, Lord using the same exact Greek phrase, mind you. And both are asked to eat unclean food, and both protest that they have never eaten anything before. Acts 10.14 compared to Ezekiel 4.14, as well as 20.49. So obviously the author of Acts is not recording any historical memory here. He's assembling a story using literary structure and motifs from sources that have little or nothing to do with what actually happened to Peter and Paul. And he's doing all this to sell a particular, historically fabricated, mind you, of, of an account of how early Christianity abandoned the requirement of Torah observance. One that made it seem approved even by Peter all along. Complete complete with the confirming approval of a divine revelation. When in fact we know from Paul in Galatians 2 that Paul was for a long time its only advocate and was merely tolerated by Torah observers like Peter. Often contentiously. Just in the same way in Acts 15 verses 7-11 pretty much puts Paul's speech from Galatians 2 14-21 into Peter's mouth. The exact opposite of what Paul says actually happened. Every other story in Acts is exactly like this. A physical creation woven from prior materials unrelated to any actual Christian history at all to sell a particular point Luke wanted to make. From the beginning all the way to the end, Acts looks like a literary construction, a creation, not real history. It was written to sell a specific, a specific idea of how the church began and then continued to evolve. It is clear that the author of Acts wanted to stress the continuity of Judaism and Christianity. Paul's close relation to the other apostles and the unity of the first believers, and thus had to subvert the epistles of Paul, especially the Galatians. For example, we know that Paul was unknown by face of the churches of Judea until many years after his conversion, as he explains in Galatians 1, 22-23. And after his conversion, he went away to Arabia before returning to Damascus. And he didn't go to Jerusalem for at least three years, as he explains to us in Galatians 1, 15-18, where Acts 7-9 has him known to and interacting with the Jerusalem church continuously from the beginning even before his conversion. Even, even in Acts, he goes immediately to Damascus and then back to Jerusalem just a few weeks later and never spends a moment in Arabia at all. Complete contradiction to what Paul said. So who's telling the truth? And yet we have the truth from Paul himself. 
So clearly the author of Acts, he was not writing actual history, but revisionist history, or perhaps pseudo-history. He simply made things up with very little care about actual historical accuracy or facts at all. Besides what we've already seen, the most obvious example of this is Luke expanding Jesus' post-resurrection stay on earth to an incredible 40 days of hanging out with his disciples and more than 100 other believers in secret, the whole while teaching them daily, even more apparently than he could think to teach while he was still alive, and then flying up and down to space to the accompaniment of angels. And as you've seen in Acts 1, verses 3 through 12, of course. Now, Burton Mack, he gives another example of how Luke's version of the history of early Christianity in Acts is wholly unrealistic. Luke says that the standard sermon was preached to the Jews on the day of the Pentecost, and often thereafter, whereupon hundreds converted, and the world became the church's parish overnight. But this is a story that does not make sense as history by any standards, not whatsoever. Not only in respect to its absurdly, you know, hyperbolic growth, but even just in its context of how people would really actually behave. In short, the narrative we have in Acts is so unrealistic, it cannot have been based on anything that actually happened ever. It's what Luke's wishes have happened, probably. Maybe what he wants people to believe happened in the Christian history. But it's certainly not what happened in reality. This conclusion should not at all surprise us, though, right? Since all other Acts literature written by Christians was wholly fabricated as well. The Acts of Peter, the Acts of Paul, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of John, and the Acts of Thomas all look substantially like the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, yet are obviously not based on any kind of actual history whatsoever. They are all literary creations telling stories the authors wanted, using known legendary characters, the various apostles after which they are named, plus in each, in each its own cast of characters, some historical, some mythical, and some invented to the purpose. The literary coincidence and acts are way too numerous to be believable, as in believable history. We can observe this. Peter and Paul are paralleled, each raising someone from the dead. Acts 9.36-40 and 29-12. Each healing a, a paralytic as in seen in 3.1-8 and 14.8-10. Each healing the extraordinary magical means. 5.15 as compared to 19.11-12. Each, each besting a sorcerer. 8.18.23-13.6-11. And each miraculously escaping a prison. 12.6-10 and 1625-26. And then similarly, Paul and Jesus both die and rise again from the dead. Yet unlike Jesus, Paul actually stomps right back into the city and he's unmolested and continues to publicly preach throughout the land, winning many more disciples for Jesus after that. Acts 14, 19-21. So in contrast, Jesus wins no new disciples after his resurrection and doesn't even try. And all this occurs immediately after Paul, also just like Jesus, is hailed as a god. Luke twenty-two seventy, and 14, 11 through 18. And in the end, Paul, unlike Jesus, is sent to meet the emperor of Rome, something even Jesus never got to accomplish. In other words, by Luke's account, 
Paul was vastly more famous and more successful than Jesus ever was. For example, the extent of parallels that are drawn between Peter and Paul and between Paul and Jesus are altogether simply way too improbable to be history. Now, likewise, the account of Paul's conversion, as seen in Acts 9, verses 1 through 20, it's simply a rewrite of what we talked about in Luke in the Emmaus narrative, Luke 24, 13 to 35. Now, here's some examples. One, both stories feature a journey on a road from Jerusalem to another city, Emmaus, Luke 24, 13, versus Damascus, Acts 9, 1 through 3. And then two, both stories feature a revelation of Jesus. And three, and Luke, the revelation came as they drew near the city where they were going. Luke 24, 28. While in Acts, the revelation came as Paul drew near the city that he was going. Acts 9, 3. And then four, in both stories, Jesus appears and rebukes the unbeliever and instructs him. And as a result, they become believers and go on to preach their new found faith. And five. In both stories, there are at least three men on the road together, and yet only one of them is named Paul, as Saul in Acts, as Cleopas in Luke 24, 18 on the, um, the Emmaus um, narrative. And then six, in both stories, the chief priests of Jerusalem are named enemies of the church. Luke 24, 20 compared to Acts 9, verses 1 and 14. And then seven, in Luke, God says Jesus had to suffer, Luke 24, 26. While in Acts, God says Paul had to suffer, Acts 9, 16. And then eight, both stories feature blindness. Blindness, excuse me. Paul is blinded by the divine light of his vision in Acts 9, 8. Whereas Cleopas and his companions' eyes are blocked from seeing that their fellow travelers is Jesus, Luke 24, 16. And nine, both stories end with this blindness being lifted. Acts 9, 17 through 18, and Luke 24, 31. And then 10, in Luke, the visitation occurs on the third day, as in Luke 24, 21. And in Acts, the visitation is followed by the blindness of three days, Acts 9, 9. And in 11, Luke, the blindness ends after a meal commences. Luke 24, 30 and 31, while in Acts, a meal commences after the blindness ends. Acts 9, 18 and 19. He continues to borrow. The author of Acts also uses features from John the Baptist narrative to construct Paul's conversion story. So here's a few. Number one, the names of John the Baptist and Ananias, who restores Paul's sight means the same thing in Aramaic. Yahweh is gracious versus Ananias, gracious is Yahweh, right? And then two, John says, prepare the way, and the Greek word is hodos, of the Lord, make his path straight, as seen in Luke 3, 4. And also Paul takes shelter on the straight street, Acts 9, 11, after attempting to destroy the way, Acts 9, 2, but instead sees the Lord in the way. Acts 9.27, and takes up the cause of preaching the way. And then three, and finally, the initial order of events is almost exactly reversed. God speaks to Paul in a vision from heaven. Acts 9, verses 3 through 8. And then Paul prays, 
Acts 9 and 11, and is baptized, Acts 9, 18, and then goes on to teach the gospel, Acts 9, 20. Jesus is baptized and then prays. Then God speaks to him in a vision from heaven, Luke 3, 21 through 22. And then in this case, just like Paul, goes on to teach the gospel, Luke 3, 23. Luke has also taken elements from the book of Tobit as well to top it off. Tobit to top it. Now, for all of this to be considered real history, you would have to posit all of these agreements and parallels as historical coincidences, which is far less probable than they are invention. And when you remove them all, you have no real story left at all to call authentic. So in general, Axe shares way too many features with popular adventure novels of the same time period to warrant as trusting and as genuine history. One, they all promote a particular god or religion. Two, they all are travel narratives. And three, they all involve miraculous or amazing events. And four, they all include encounters with fabulous and exotic people. For example, both sacrificing pagans of Lyconia in Acts 14, 18 through 19, or superstitious narratives of Malta in 28, 1 through 6, and philosophical Athenian dilettantes in chapter 17, as well as fanatical pagan silversmiths of, of Ephesus, pronouncing that right, of Ephesus, in 1923 through 41, and so on. And then five, they often incorporate a theme of chaste couples, and then reunited. A token nod to the element exists in Paul's chaste interaction with Lydia in Acts 16, 13 to 40. And this many woven women followers, named and unnamed. And then six, they all feature existing narratives of captives and escape scenarios, as seen in Acts 12, 16, 21, and even 26. And then in seven, they often include themes of persecution. Of course they do. And then eight, scenes involving excited crowds who become a character in the story, as in Ephesus and in Jerusalem. And in Acts 18 and 19, and Acts 6 to 7, and 21 to 22. And then 9, and divine rescue from danger. And 10, divine revelations are always integral to the plot. Through, or, through oracles and dreams and visions of all which feature in Acts. In fact, Acts looks far more like a novel than any historical monograph of the period. If Acts looks exactly like an ancient novel, which it does... Are, are we really going to call it a coincidence? Whether we grant such assumptions or not, Luke obviously constructed tales affirming the historicity of Jesus, as well as the physical resurrection of his corpse, which left behind a conspicuously empty tomb. Got, got touched by the disciples, slept and dined with them during a secret 40-day closed-door conference, and then flew off into outer space before their very eyes. Luke 24 compared to Acts 1. So my friends and fellow listeners, this is obviously complete nonsense. Now notably, no witnesses are claimed for any of this but fanatical Christian apologetic followers. No one else is reported to have verified any of it. Instead, the public history of the Christian mission actually begins in Acts 2, which depicts the first time Christians publicly announced their gospel. But something very strange happens at that point. In Acts history of the movement, from the movement the flock goes first goes public, 
in the very city of Jerusalem itself, at no point in the story, anywhere in all subsequent 27 chapters spanning three decades of its history, do either the Romans or the Jews show any knowledge of there being any missing body. Nor do they ever take any action to investigate what could only be to them as a crime of tomb robbery or desecration of the dead. Both severe death penalties for these offenses happen. Or worse, the Gospel of Matthew even claims that Jewish authorities accused the Christians of such crimes before Pilate himself. Consider Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. Chapter 28, verses 4 and 11 to 15. Now, although that is certainly fiction, that confirms Matthew's story as a poetic and apologetic fabrication. It does reflect what could not have happened if anybody had actually gone missing. So let's talk about that missing body a little bit, shall we? Because Christians were supposedly capitalizing on this fact. Missing body as evidence for a risen Jesus. They would be the first suspects, wouldn't they? Or at least the second, if as the Gospels claim, you know, Joseph of Arrhythmia was really the last person known to have had full custody of the body. You know, he had possession of Jesus in his hands. As seen in Mark 15, 43-46 and Matthew proclaims it in 27, 57 through 69. Luke proclaims it in 23, 51 through 56. And John in 19, 38 to 42. So in that case, he would have been the first man hauled off in for questioning by the Romans, wouldn't he? Yet he vanishes completely from this entirely. The earliest history of the church, as if no one knew anything about him or he didn't exist at all. Unless, of course, he was found and ultimately confessed to getting rid of the body, then Christians would be up next otherwise. And yet, though Christians would certainly be suspects of a capital crime of grave robbery, in Acts records case after case after case of Christians being interrogated at trial before both Jews and Romans on other offenses, we never once hear in the entire history of the church that they are suspected of or even questioned about it and possibly convicted for it, innocent or not. Yet the book of Acts shows that there were no disputes at all regarding what happened to the body, not even false accusations of theft or even questions or expressions of amazement. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, because the Romans would have had even a more urgent need and more reasons to worry than just a case of body snatching, because the Christians were supposedly preaching that Jesus, even with his supernatural powers, had escaped his execution and was seen rallying his, you know, his troops together, rallying his followers, and then suddenly disappears. Now, Pilate and the Sanhedrin would not likely believe this claim of his resurrection or even ascension. And there's no evidence that they actually did. But if the tomb was empty and Christ's followers were reporting that he had continued to, to preach to them and was still out there at large, Pilate would have been compelled to haul every single Christian in and interrogate them. Pilate would have launched a huge manhunt for what would be the only thing on his mind as an escaped convict not only guilty for treason against Rome for claiming to be the god and king as all the gospels allege anyway but now also guilty for escaping in and eluding justice and the Sanhedrin would feel the equally compelling need to finish what they had evidently failed to accomplish 
you know, the first time around, which was finding and killing Jesus. Yet none of this ever happens. No one has ever asked, hey, where's Jesus hiding? Or, hey, who's aiding him? Who's helping him out? No one at all is concerned that there may be an escaped convict or a pretender to the throne or the thwarter of Roman law and judgment, dire threat to Jewish authority, alive and well somewhere and hiding and still giving orders to all of his followers. Why would no one care that the Christians were claiming that they took him in and, and hid him from the authorities and fed him after his escape for, from justice, especially according to Acts 1? Unless, in fact, they weren't claiming any such thing at all. This is enough to confirm Acts' account of the events as a total complete fabrication and unrealistic one at that. So if Acts is legitimately a continuation of Luke, then we're talking about this author writing sometime into the late 1st century, early 2nd century of the Christian movement, of this particular sectarian group. Now, the fact that Acts fails to mention any debate or investigation or discussion about any tomb being empty or a body gone missing, it never even occurs as an argument or having to defend it in any trial whatsoever or any debates that the book of Acts even records. Yet, there are several different debates and trials that Christians face early in Acts. So why is one so important as this not even to show up? So, likewise, about any executed convict being portrayed alive and well, out at large, would agree with the theory that the original Christians were, in fact, preaching that Jesus rose in an entirely new body, not the old one that he discarded and left behind at the grave. As Paul wrote, the body that dies is not the body that is to come, but rather the buried body is left to be destroyed while a superior replacement body is already stored up in heaven, waiting for us, as seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 35-50, as, well as, as well as 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4. Now that could be why those claims are dismissed as mere madness, as seen in Acts 26, 24, right? Involving no criminal charges of any kind underneath Roman law. Otherwise, the crime of either grave robbing or aiding and abetting an escaped felon and a royal pretender to the throne would certainly have been obvious grounds for an, for an inquest or a trial. But neither one of these occur. Now, the second peculiar thing about Acts is how thoroughly all of these people associated with the historical Jesus, opposed to a cosmically revealed Jesus, simply disappear from the historical record entirely. Poof! They're just gone. This, a historicist cannot plausibly explain at all. So not only does Pontius Pilate and Joseph of Arrhythmia immediately vanish from Christian history, Pilate only gets mentioned only as the crucifier of Jesus in some speeches by Christians who's echoing Luke's gospel, as do all these other characters that just simply disappear from Christian history. Simon of Cyrene and his sons from, from Mark, 1521 and Luke 2326 and even Martha disappears from Luke 10:38-42 and mentioned in John 11:1 through 12:2 and even her brother Lazarus the invented character John from 11 through 12 and even the other invented character Nicodemus is just vanished boom John 3:1 through 9 7:50 and 19:39 and, and even worse where did Mary Magdalene go 
from Acts 2 on, none of these people is ever mentioned or ever does or says anything. Nor, nor is their departure or lack of involvement ever noted or even explained. But so does the entire family of Jesus. Even though Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers were explicitly said to have joined the church congregation in Acts 1, verse 14. As soon as Christianity becomes public news, they immediately vanish altogether from history, as does Jesus' father, Joseph. Though his omission in Acts 1, 14, taken to imply that he had died, although it's, a, it's at least strange the fact that is never mentioned anywhere else. Now, likewise, we might explain away the disappearance of his sister, which he is supposed to have had in Mark 6, 3 and Matthew 13, 56, by supposing their insignificance. But, all of his, but, but his mother and all of his brothers? Give me a break. Where did they go? How come they aren't important to Christian history whatsoever anymore? And this is after their explicit connection and involvement within the early church and its growth. But they do nothing, they say nothing, they contribute nothing. So the absence of major characters that are introduced by John anyway, such as Lazarus and Nicodemus, and we've already really talked about where Lazarus came from, Luke's invention, right? Who already don't appear in any prior gospel, much less Acts, can be explained away way easier as inventions of John. And their importance and connection to Jesus is so prominent in his gospel that their absence, even in prior gospels, is already sufficiently enough to be inexplicable. And there is no other evidence of their non-existence, even more decisive, likewise for other named characters. But Pilate's absence cannot be explained away like that. Now certainly, if Pilate never had anything to do with the death of Jesus, his absence from Acts sources for the early Jerusalem church is easily explained, somewhat less so otherwise. It's the complete disappearance of Jesus' family that is really hard to explain away. After the report of their being with the congregations in Acts 1.14, Mother Mary is never mentioned ever again. She never says or does anything, is never spoken of or heard of again, and nothing even happens to her. She says, poof! We aren't even told when or why or where she lived or died. She literally disappears from the history as if she never existed at all. Though in Acts 1.14 also said Jesus' brothers were present just weeks before the Pentecost announcement recorded in Acts 2. All of his brothers then disappeared and are never mentioned of again. According to Acts, they had no role at all to play in the history of the early church and are never mentioned or heard from again, just like Jesus' mother, Mary, right? No one, no one even seems to be aware that they existed at all. This includes most conspicuously the infamous brother James, right? Who is supposed to have been one of the most important leaders of the movement, one of the three pillars of which the church was founded on. And if that's what we're to understand in Galatians 1.19 and 2.9, or to mean in 1 Corinthians 15.7, he's just gone. The entirety of Luke and Acts mentions only two men by the name of James, yet fails to identify either of them as the brother of Jesus. To the contrary, it specifically distinguishes both of them, 
both from his brothers, as seen in Acts 1.14. Now, one of them indeed is one of the three pillars named by Paul. Remember, Peter, James, and John is told to the Galatians in 2.9, in light of Mark 3.16 and 5.37, 9.2, as well as Luke 5.10, 8.51, and 9.28, etc., who clearly was not the brother of Jesus, as all the Gospels obviously agree, but the brother of the other pillar, John. Now, Acts says that this James was beheaded by Herod, Acts 12, 1 and 2. The only brother James in Luke and Acts is James, the son of Alphaeus, seen in Luke 6, 15, compared to Acts 1, 13, who must therefore be the James that's still around after the first one is killed in Acts 12, 17, and 15, 13, and 21, 18. Although Acts has egregiously toyed with the chronology, which is contradicting the first-hand accounts of Paul in almost every single particular, that we might guess Luke has simply accidentally transposed the story actually about James the Pillar to a later period, and probably just forgetting that he had killed him off in earlier episodes. After all, Luke does not otherwise explain why this second James is suddenly and consistently treated as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which James the pillar is known to have been. Now, later Christian legend, in the late second century, a whole lifetime or two after Acts is written, James ben Alphaeus is replaced with the brother of the Lord. But Luke clearly has no knowledge of his connection nor do any of the other Gospels show any awareness that any brothers of Jesus had any role in the church at all, much less a leader, a significant player in the Christian story here. But Mark had already suggested none of Jesus' family entered the church, as he had Jesus disown them, remember? So after the first chapter of Acts, the moment Christianity's history becomes public record, it suddenly appears as if Jesus had no family at all. And this is certainly more likely if there was no Jesus in the first place. For if Jesus didn't exist, then our author's genuine historical sources, insofar as he had any, would have only begun with the origins of the church under that of Peter, as represented from Acts 2 and on. And these sources would never mention any of the family of Jesus, or Pontius Pilate, or anyone who buried Jesus, or carried his cross even because no such people ever actually existed. They were just filler roles to suit the narrative, characters in a play, or else they had nothing to do with the historical Jesus whatsoever. Now for sure, one might even try to argue that Luke had some motivation to erase the family of Jesus from the history of the church, but that is already refuted by the fact that he didn't. Remember, he includes them in the original congregation, as seen in Acts 1.14. It's also rendered intrinsically improbable by the fact that, if later legend were true, and James, the brother of Jesus, was a major and key figure in the early church, erasing him from the early history of the early church would have been impossible to do. And why would you do it? What would be the motivation of that? Any Christian aware of the legends would want to know how Luke could erase such an important figure from his accounts and still be trusted as a historian. Remember, Luke is the only one of the Gospels that actually presents himself as a historian. Now, if Luke really wanted to downplay the role of Jesus' family in favor of Peter and Paul, 
he would have invented accounts of them explicitly doing so much sooner in his narrative. He would not have simply forgotten that they existed altogether. Just compare how Luke rewrote the entire history of Paul's interactions with Peter and the Jerusalem church in Galatians 1-2. through That's what he does with historical facts he doesn't like. He erases them. He doesn't just delete people. He makes them say and do things that he wants, desires, or needs. One might even say Luke just wishes them to the cornfields, the characters that he doesn't like anymore. Another curious thing about Acts is when the trials of Paul are examined, rather than his sermons or speeches, the historical Jesus himself seemingly, mysteriously disappears, as if Jesus as well is wished into the cornfields. <laughs> now, since we can't expect that in any actual trial that Paul was in, only a cosmic Jesus would be under attack or defended and debated upon. And that appears to be exactly what Acts reports to have happened. In Acts, Paul faces two trials. One brief encounter in Greece, an extended period of hearings in Judea. The first occurs before Gallio, then the Roman governor of Greece, on a charge of persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. Take a look at Acts 18.13. But instead, Gallio dismisses the case. And the trial notes say nothing about Jesus or Christians as seen in Acts 18, verses 14 to 15. So in the next series of hearings in Judea, it will appear even more conspicuous than that. So this is the story that we get that's told in Acts about Paul. So basically, after Paul inadvertently causes a riot throughout all of Jerusalem, the Roman garrison commander, Claudius Lysias, intervenes and basically calms things down, if you would, and basically lets Paul give a public speech, essentially summarizing his story up to that point, which for some unexplained reason outrages the crowd, and they start rioting all over again, calling for his death, at which Lysias takes him back into custody and then takes him into interrogation. And then when he finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen, a detail Paul never mentions in his letters, in fact, in Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11.25, he says he was canned three times, which contradicts Luke's depiction of Paul as touting his citizenship to avoid a beating. But in Paul's speech to the people during this episode, he makes no mention of a historical Jesus whatsoever, only a Lord known by revelation. And he says this to us in Acts 22, verses 6 to 15, as well as verse 17, as well as 18. Now, indeed, Paul has yet another revelatory encounter with Jesus just shortly after. So then, Lysias then brings Paul back to the meeting with the Jewish elite, only to, you know, just to find out why the riot even occurred in the first place. And during this inquest, the Pharisees that were present concluded, We find nothing wrong in this man. Maybe a spirit spoke to him or an angel. You can see this in Acts 23.9. But then they get into a fight with the Sadducee peers over religious differences, and a riot breaks out again. So Lysias then takes Paul out of there. Then Lysias then learns that a small army of Jews was forming to a plot to assassinate Paul on this very next day in court. 
at which he immediately ships Paul off to the Roman governor under massive guard. And we're told in Acts, nearly a hundred horsemen and, and, and 200 infantry. <laughs> to explain this extraordinary action, Lysias wrote an official letter to the governor explaining the deposition of Paul's case. And so we're going to read it below. So this is Lysias' official letter as seen in Acts. And I begin the quote. Claudius Lysias to Felix, the most excellent governor, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. So I sent him out with an army and took him out of there, having learned he is a Roman citizen. Since I wanted to know what they accused him of, I brought him into their court, where I found he was accused regarding question of their law. But there was nothing in the charge worthy of death or imprisonment. When a secret plot against the man was revealed to me, I sent him unto you. End quote. Now, obviously, this cannot be an authentic document as presented to us in the book of Acts anyway, because it lacks features that a real one would necessarily have to have, such as Paul's full Roman name is missing, and indeed the full names of Claudius as well as Felix, and the date. These are major examples that are missing in an authentic document that would be sent to somebody of this caliber in the Roman government. But whether a fabrication or a literary abbreviation of a real letter, it is still conspicuously, it, it lacks any mention of a historical Jesus whatsoever. It's still missing. Yet the fact that Paul was advocating the worship of an executed convict would have certainly been permanent information for Lysus to mention to Felix. So, so the more so if the convict was believed to have escaped, and still at large, and giving orders to its co-conspirators, i.e. Christians, even just the fact that Paul's case was connected to the execution of an accused insurrectionist and pretender of the throne. It could not fail to be essential information here. How could it be avoided? Considering that Paul was advocating the worship that a pretender to the throne which would surely put Paul under suspicion of being an insurrectionist or a traitor himself. But instead, the letter only says his case only had to do with obscure matters of Jewish religion and, and involved no violations of Roman law at all. So I digress a little bit. But Paul is then brought under that massive guard to go see Felix, right? Some, some 200 infantry, something like that. <laughs> and that's in Acts 23, verses 31 through 35. But his accusers are then also brought in, and they are allowed to plead their case against Paul. And what do they accuse him against? They accuse him of provoking insurrection and defiling the temple, neither of which, of course, Paul was ever guilty of, nor did they have any evidence to back up those charges. But yet again, no mention is made of his worshipping a convicted felon who was executed on suspicion of declaring himself as the real king. But in reality, his accusers would have made a great deal out of that particular fact, wouldn't they? And then Paul is then finally allowed to respond. So here again, Paul makes no mention of Jesus in his case, only that they have no evidence to convict him on, and that he is only really being accused because he agrees with the Pharisees that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And then Felix 
ends the inquiry, make no judgment, and basically keeps Paul locked up for two years, we are told in Acts. For no explicable reason whatsoever, and somewhat against the laws protecting the rights of Roman citizens, a complete contradiction, which is odd in its own, and these writers may be unaware, or, or it didn't fit the particular narrative just right. But during this illegal um, Roman imprisonment, Felix has Paul over for dinner on occasion. That happens, right? Where Paul scares him with talk about future apocalyptic judgment. Yes, he does. While they're sitting there having dinner and drinking some of his wine, right? You can read this in Acts 24, 23-27. But there's still a never a word about a historical Jesus painted at all. Not even in all these little, little, little personal one-on-one -on -one dinners with, with Felix. Even though he tells them all about the faith in Jesus Christ. As seen in chapter 24, verse 24. And we're not told what that even means. Now, eventually, a new governor moves in, and his name is Festus. And the Jews try to get him to ship Paul back to Jerusalem. But instead, he holds an inquiry as well, just like Felix did. See this in Acts 24, 27, as well as 25, 12, at which nothing changes. The same vague charges are advanced, in which Paul simply denies. Except that Paul appeals to be, or, I'm sorry, appears to be sent before Caesar. And this request is particularly granted at this particular time. So Paul finally gets to say his piece, providing us with a lengthy speech spanning at least over 22 some odd verses. Acts 26 verses 1 through, through 23. Yet at no point does he ever refer to a historical Jesus again. Instead, we only hear about a cosmically revealed Jesus. No mention is made of Jesus having, again, we're going to go through the litany of, uh, of points here, having a, a ministry, or having appointed disciples, or having been executed, or, or, or having proved himself as a divine by, by performing miracles, or, or even teaching, anything at all. This is very much unlike Paul's speech at the synagogue in Antioch as seen in Acts 13, verses 23-41, which goes into explicit details of the gospel accounts of who Jesus was and, and what happened to him. But here in this particular trial speech, Jesus is only known through a heavenly vision. 26, verses 13-19. through 19. And matter of fact, the only mention Paul makes of, his, of the death and resurrection of Jesus is to say, Moses and the prophets said it was going to happen. Not that anyone had actually seen it happen, nor that there were any real evidence that it did, much less that Pontius Pilate played a role in it and that the Roman records would confirm it. 26, 22 through 23. In fact, the only source that Paul cites for it is, is only through Scripture. Nothing else, nothing else to support it or back it, just that it was hinted to and prophesied in Scripture. Now, Paul preached only what the prophets and Moses said would particularly happen, whether the Christ would suffer, or whether from resurrection from the dead, would he be the first to proclaim light of God's people to, uh, to the Gentiles? Revelations in Scripture are his only sources and his only offered evidence for his Jesus. Now, it makes sense why Festus would answer, You've gone mad, Paul. Your abundant learning has driven you mad. 
as seen in chapter 26, verse 24. Since the only thing that Paul says he was accused of is preaching what he learned from Scripture and from the voices that came in the sky, the only rebuttal that Fetus could offer is that Paul had simply gone off of his rocker. Now, Paul assures him that he hasn't, though, and says to Agrippa that, as a Jew, he knows about these things because none of the facts Paul relates are hidden from him, since this has not been done in corner, as seen in Acts 26. Verse 26. So what things is Paul talking about here? That Paul has been a long-time devoted Pharisee? Or that he was being accused of merely hoping for the fulfillment of Scripture? Or even though all the Jews are the, uh, you know, have, sharing the same hope, which is the hope that God would raise the dead? Or that Paul persecuted Christians, but then saw a blinding celestial vision from God, and then obeyed his vision and, and preached his message? which was simply to repent and turn to God and do the works you know, worthy of repentance, which he preached all over the place and eventually to the Gentiles, and that the Jews seized Paul for preaching this message. And now he's on trial, saying nothing but what both prophets and Moses was, was going to say happened. Not one single reference to a historical Jesus is made here in any of this, in every single one of these verses. Every single fact here could be true without there having been a historical Jesus at all. As the Pharisees already said of Paul at the first court inquest, starting this whole series of hearings, maybe a spirit spoke to him or an angel, as seen in Acts 23.9. Now indeed, this entire account from Acts 23 all the way through 26, that's all Paul appears to know about. Even his fiction the historical deeds and the fate of his particular Jesus would be crucial rhetorical material for both the prosecution and the defense in all of Paul's trials. They should have been arguing over the facts of Jesus' ministry and his teachings and his miracles, the facts of his death and the fate of his lost hidden body or vanished body, whatever you have, the charges against him and the significance of his conviction and whether he was still alive and at large or not, and what he was instructing his spiritual soldiers to do, right, after he evaded the tomb. That Luke wouldn't even think of this when inventing these narratives is too hard to even imagine or to explain, especially, especially since when he provides us with these long, elaborate speeches elsewhere, not just from Peter, but even from Paul, as in his Antioch speech. He gives us something of what we should expect. Whereas here, all of these details have mysteriously or miraculously vanished. Despite this being collectively the longest and most detailed series of trial hearings related in Acts, it is more than likely that Luke is reworking some material that he had received, or perhaps a lost act of Paul in which there was no Jesus executed by Pilate, but by a cosmically dying and rising Christ known only through revelation and in scripture, as Paul, writing in the 50s and the 60s, absolutely coincides with. Not what this writer, if presumed it is Luke, is writing so late into the 90s. Very different. But was this writer writing into the 90s referring to some other older piece of literature? that we no longer have? So now that we're talking about these speeches, 
I want to talk about the invention of a character named Stephen. Now, here's an example. The longest speech in all of Acts is about this character named Stephen delivered to the Sanhedrin, which is, if you recall, they are the Jewish high priest, the elite priests of the temple. And this is immediately before he is, this Stephen is executed by stoning as punishment. You can see this in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through chapter 8, verse 2. And this is all happening in the presence of Paul and evidently with his approval. And there are historical inaccuracies in the account as we have it because Mishnah law required that a capital sentence and capital punishment would be voted on the day after the trial so the judges could actually go home and think about it overnight before actually taking a life. Whereas in the accounts of this author for Acts, the court just has him stoned immediately without even taking a vote. It's entirely unrealistic, but suiting a particular narrative and we'll see why. So similarly, Stephen's speech draws on the Septuagint, which is a popular Greek translation of the Old Testament, and this is perhaps an odd thing to do for a supposed native of Palestine in a Jerusalem courtroom, where summarizing the Hebrew original would probably be more expected, right? Complete with errors only present in the Septuagint. But that could be a reflection of either the author's method of composing the fiction of Stephen's I don't know. But also, Stephen's speech is also a unique in Acts in many other aspects as well. For its content, its construction, its length, and its being assigned to an otherwise insignificant speaker. Stephen is only suddenly and inexplicably introduced into the story for no other rhyme or reason. He's, given, he's delivered to us in Acts 6 verse 5 so as to immediately become the first Christian executed for the faith, which is a strange course of events given since or considering that Peter and John were both twice tried for the same exact crimes and repeatedly acquitted for it, suggesting a huge narrative inconsistency that might again reflect this particular author, Luke or not, employment of different sources, one treating the story of Paul, another of Peter and John. Or else's, or else's remarkable ineptitude as a particular author or storyteller. We're not sure which one it is, but it's awfully interesting to find out what he's doing here. So this character, Stephen, is likely a fictional character, and probably just a stock character that this author keeps in his back pocket as a generic Christian martyr. Even his name, Stephanos, literally meaning crown which evokes the standard epithet for a faithful Christian as well as a Christian martyr, as seen in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, and encourages all Christians, be faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. And well as James chapter 1, verse 12 says, all who remain faithful in the face of temptation will receive the crown of life. Also in 1 Peter 5.4, says that when Jesus appears to the faithful, you shall receive the crown of glory that never fades away. And in 2 Timothy 4, chapter 8, says, Martyrs who love the appearing of Jesus will receive the crown of righteousness. And notably, Jesus appears to Stephen immediately before he dies for the faith in the particular story. And then in Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, Likewise says, 
Jesus was crowned with glory and honor for his martyrdom. And the death of Stephen is indeed modeled on the death of Jesus. Just like Jesus, Stephen forgives his killers just before his death. This, this author employs this in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, compared to, take a look at Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And just before both of them die, Jesus and Stephen, both Stephen and Jesus declare aloud that they give their spirit to God. This happens in, or it's employed in Acts 7, verse 59, just like in Luke 23, uh, verse 46. And both deliver their last words with a great cry. See Acts 7, verse 60, verses Luke 23, 46. And both have their garments taken away and, and, given, and given out. Acts 7, 58, verses Luke 23, 24. And just as Jesus says, his trial that his accusers will see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of the power of God, Luke 22, 69. So Stephen says in his trial that he indeed sees the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. All right, Acts 7, 55-56. Yet his accusers don't, presumably because it's not the apocalypse yet. So Luke has ultimately borrowed elements from Mark. Like Jesus, Stephen is accused by false witness that his enemies drum up against him, adapting pieces from Mark chapter 14, 55 to 59, to construct his story, his narrative in Acts 6, verses 11 to 14. And the false accusations are also the same. Stephen is accused of claiming that this Jesus, the Nazarene, was going to destroy the temple and change all the laws. The same thing Jesus was charged with in Mark's account, but told some three decades earlier. Now, notably, even though we know that Luke used Mark as a source of constructing his gospel, he omitted both of these details in his account of the arrest and the trial of Jesus. He uses them instead only here. Luke's wanton fabrication, including his use of Josephus to make his story seem more historically informed, right? We already talked about that a little bit. And his complete rewrite of the story to reverse the facts reported directly by Paul. And his overt attempt to make his book look like actual histories, just like Josephus. So pretty much established that he is honestly reporting the facts as he knows them. He's trying to create facts and sells them as truths. Now bear with me because I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Because near the end, or around the same time that the Gospels were being written, the Greek scholar Plutarch honors Clea, who is basically the priestess of the mysteries of the cult of Isis, with a treaty about her religion entitled On Isis and Osiris. Now, obviously, these are Egyptian gods and goddesses, right? We know this. So, in this, he explains why her cult had adopted a certain belief about life and the resurrection of Osiris. In the true account that was reserved for those who, like her, were initiated into its cultic secrets. So, he said the real truth was that Osiris was never really a historical person at all whose activity ever took place on earth, as public accounts would portray him to be. Just the same as Jesus, right? So Osiris was rather a celestial being whose trials and sufferings took place in outer space just below the moon, where death and turmoil would reign. 
So therefore, Osiris descends every year and becomes incarnate by assuming a mortal body of flesh, and then is killed by Set, his brother, if you remember, in Greek is Typhon, the Egyptian analogous to the Christian Satan. So, and then there is the resurrected, literally undergoing, as Plutarch says in Greek, anabiosis, which literally translates to return of life and a regeneration, and uses the same exact Greek word that Matthew employs in chapter 19, verse 28. So from there, Osiris ascends back to heaven in heavenly glory. So that means there were public stories that portrayed the death and the resurrection of Osiris as taking place on earth and in human history. So these also imagined him descending to rule the underworld. But Plutarch explains to us those stories disguised the true teachings that were reserved for those of sufficient rank within the cult. You must not think, he says, that any of these tales actually happened. No, we must not treat legend as if it were history at all. Gods like Osiris never really were generals or admirals or kings who lived in very ancient times only to become gods after their death. But to the contrary, they were always celestial deities in some shape or form of one or another, whether living as gods far above under the heavens or perhaps even as demigods that were invisible in outer space among us carrying the prayers and the petitions of men up from earth and into the heavens and outer space, and transporting divine oracles and gifts back from those same stellar reaches to the earth below. Now, accordingly, Plutarch reminds Clea, this high priestess of the cult, if you would, the holy and sacred Osiris does not rule beneath the earth as the ignorant public portrays or thinks or believes, but as far removed from the earth, uncontaminated and unpolluted and pure from all matter that is subjected to the destruction and death. As Plutarch further explains, is that the same treaty, that part of the world subject to destruction is contained underneath the orb of the moon, whereas all the real relations and forms and effluxes of the gods abide in the heavens and the stars above. That's how Osiris came to become incarnate, die, and then rise back from the dead every single year. This wasn't happening down in Earth's history. It was happening in the distant skies above. So those public myths were just a disguise to hide another message one for those who would understand that were of the particular rank of the cult, and then one for just the general population. Osiris did not rule the dead from the underworld, but rather from the celestial realms above. And to maintain that reign, he dies and rises cosmically every single year, not once upon a time on earth, which means he was really never historical pharaoh at all. And Egyptian records are continuous enough that we can confirm there indeed never was a historical Osiris within the lineage of kings. So we know that the Gospels of his deeds on earth were absolutely mythical. As imagined, right? Only his cosmic death and resurrection were real to his priesthood who were selling the propaganda. Just as Plutarch said, right? He told us this. 
So one has to ask themselves, could this be the same sort of thing that was originally believed of Jesus? So think about it, because after all, Egypt borders Judea and housed even a large community of Jews who often observed, combated, and even studied the religions of their surrounding and ruling Gentiles. And a lot of pilgrimages took place every single year, with countless Egyptian Jews visiting Jerusalem and even trade with all quarters of Judea. This was common practice during this time. And the Osiris cult was not only in Egypt, but it was everywhere. It wasn't so isolated as one might imagine. And pilgrims and traders from every single province crisscrossed Judea on a regular basis, conducting and trade, doing business with each other. Even Galilee had within its and around it several Gentile cities with regular commerce of, you know, within the outside world. And the Osiris cult was not the only savior cult experiencing popularity among Gentiles at the time. There was also the cult of Hercules and Melchort and Adonis and Talmas. Um, they were all thriving in Tyre as well as beyond. Even the cult of Bacchus Dionysus, where these mystery cults were in every single province, all sharing within the same theme of dying, rising savior gods that would appear in the flesh every single year. So, and these other savior cults are known as well. And though data is less on them because they, you know, the survival of these particular literature, but we're told about them outside sources, for the most part, we know enough to see a common pattern. A pattern then unseen in any other part of the world. There were no such savior cults in ancient China or in India or even in Persia. They were just in this particular place and within the Levant, stretching up from Syria all the way down to Egypt. They were a unique feature of the Mediterranean religious cultures. At the very same time, Christianity was developing. So it cannot be a coincidence that Christianity looks just like them, or to be more, be more precise, exactly like a Jewish one. Now I'd like to take a look at what these other popular salvation cults had in common with Christianity. Now, they were personal salvation cults, yes, that often evolved from a prior communal agricultural cult. So just like Christianity from its parent cult of Judaism. Judaism is a known communal salvation scheme, also originally based on and around agriculture. That became a personal salvation cult instead. Christianity carried that feature to its now fashionable conclusion. These cults also guaranteed their individuals a good place to hang out in the afterlife. This was a common thing among these guys, which was a concern that was not present in the earliest form of Western religions, including that of early Judaism. But again, that notion had already been picked up by Judaism that we can tell before Christianity evolved from it. So Christianity merely adopted that particular theme. There were cults that you joined through membership as opposed to just this open enrollment or communal religions. In fact, Judaism was mostly a racial and national religion like every other, though to a small extent it had already begun exploiting the prospect of joining through conversion, through circumcision, as seen in Exodus 12:48, And Christianity would soon do away with that requirement and replace it with baptism. And by the way, baptism, as well as circumcision, those were both adopted themes from their Egyptian neighbors. They weren't, you know, these aren't original themes picked up from Christianity. So the same joining ritual 
this was found in every other mystery cult in the area at the time. Now, these cults also enacted a fictive kin group. And what is that? That's basically where through this membership, members would start referring to themselves as brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, just as we saw Christianity did with brothers of the Lord, <laughs> as you remember that we talked about that. And then they were joined through the practice of baptism, which was the use of water contact ritual to effect an initiation, often through a remission of sins, as described, for example, in Plato's Republic and beyond that, for example. Several sects of Judaism already had adopted various water rituals. And then Christians likely adapted one of them into their cult initiation ceremony, so similar to that of Gentiles' favorite cults as to even retain the pagan concept of baptism for the dead. Even as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15.29, we're allowing initiation even of the deceased into salvation after the fact by baptizing a living proxy, which had long been a feature of the Bakshis mysteries, Right? So they were maintained through communion, regular sacred meals enacting the presence of the particular God in question. And Christianity simply adapted this for what Judaism already had like it, which was the Passover ritual, celebrating a past and also quite mythical, rescue from death and resurrection. But the Savior cults employed such meals as security for one's future rescue from death in the form of the blessed afterlife. And so now, Christianity used this particular theme as well. They also all involved secret teachings with secret meanings that were reserved only to the members, and some only to members of particular ranks. And Paul speaks often of such secret teachings and his inability to fully express them in his letters. These cults also all used some sort of common vocabulary to identify what these ideas were, such as, such as talk of children as the lesser initiated, or adults as the fully initiated, or milk, the outward stories for the lower members, and meat, the inner mysteries reserved for the higher members. Description of our mortal aging bodies are mere cloaks, tents, or tombs, referring to those hidden secrets available to the more informed as mysteries, so on and so forth. Such vocabulary is found throughout the letters of Paul, our earliest Christian source. They were also very syncretistic, which basically means that they modified their common package of ideas with concepts that were distinctive of whatever the adopting culture was. Every savior cult was different from every other. The differences reflected the adopting native religion, such as the Asaurus cult was distinctively Egyptian, the Adonis cult was distinctively Mesopotamian, and the Bacchus cult was distinctively Greek, and Christianity was distinctively Jewish. There were also all mono or henotheistic, just like Judaism. They preached a supreme God by whom all other divinities are created, or to whom all are subordinate or otherwise mere facets of whether these other gods were being called gods or not. They were individualistic. They relate primarily to salvation of the individual versus the entire community, just like Christianity. And they were also cosmopolitan. They intentionally crossed social borders of race, culture, nation's wealth, and sometimes even gender, just like Christianity. So by now, 
you're probably already wondering how Christianity could be so similar to all of these other cults. So many traits, so many features, but it goes beyond even that. Just consider what the central figures of these cults also had in common. And they are all considered savior gods, literally so named and so called, always sent in service to the supreme god, as their agent or representative, right? So it's already peculiar that even Jesus, the name literally means savior god or God's savior. So they are the son or sometimes daughter of the supreme god, just like Jesus. They all undergo a passion, which means a suffering or a struggle. Literally the same word used in Greek, pathion, if you would. The passion is often though not always, a death followed by a resurrection and usually an ascension into heaven into triumph, just like we saw with Romulus, right? By which passion, of whichever kind, they obtain victory over death every single time. Which victory they often share with their followers, typically again through some sort of baptism or communion, some sort of dinner together, right? And they all have stories about them set in some sort of human history on earth, one way or another. Yet, so far we can tell, none of them ever actually did, including Jesus. So all you would have to do to any one of these other savior cults that we just discussed is just mix in the culturally distinct features of Judaism that this fashionable package cult was syncretized with, such as messianism or apocalypticism or scripturalism. The particularly Jewish ideas about resurrection or Jewish soteriology or cosmology and rituals and many other things peculiar to Judaism, such as the, uh, the, the adherence to sexuality and the obsession with blood atonement and the, and the substitutionary sacrifice. And you would literally have Christianity fully spelled out for you, even before it existed. So the fact alone that we could literally have fully described Christianity before it even existed by merely combining Judaism with the cultural package common to all other Seaver cults of the time surely cannot be a coincidence at all, can it? Christianity is unmistakably a Jewish version of the same Western cult trends that we had just looked at, and was such from its very founding. This already popular savior cult model was simply Judaized, if you want to call it that. And very quickly, under Paul, made it even more alike, rendering it even more popular. This is the way that we see Christianity was, was born. The differences from all of those other cults is the Jewish element. That is, that similarities are Western cultural influences that brought forth something new. This is just what happened the last time the Jews were subject to a great empire. Think about it. When under Persian rule, they adopted themes from the Persian Zoroastrianism, ideas of, of an apocalypse, ideas of a messiah, ideas of a linear view of history, or resurrection of the dead, and even a Satan as an enemy of God, as well as the creator of death, all converted into a Jewish theme or into a Jewish form. Surrounded and altered by Jewish ideas, of course. Judaism is not, after all, Zoroastrianism, but it was forever transformed by it. And also under Greco-Roman dominion, it was transformed again 
by the equally popular construct of the mystery religions that we had just talked about into what we currently know as Christianity today. So because none of those other savior gods from those other savior cults were ever really historical, yet all were portrayed as such, lends us enough sufficient evidence and enough sufficient grounds to at least suspect that Jesus is not the lone strange exception. Can we? Because the Gospels are rife with other obvious markers that are typical of mythical persons, right? Only further secures that particular suspicion. So we had already discovered everything that we talked about from the Gospels and the Book of Acts. And this is the only conclusion that we can end with. So I think this is a pretty good place to end this episode. I think we did a pretty good job over the last several episodes taking a look at obviously all the epistles, the works of you know, the Pauline letters. We looked at all four of the canonical gospels and the final book of Acts, right? So we took a look at all of that. And then ending in this particular episode, we looked at similar Greco-Roman cults that were happening, Egyptian cults that were happening all around the first time. And then see how they can compare to Christianity, right? The fact that they're all savior cults is very interesting, and particularly that they all were coming from an original agricultural cult that was retooled and transformed. So pretty cool stuff there, something to think about. And so coming into the next episode, um, we're going to start taking a look at stuff that's outside of the Bible. We're going to look at all the extra biblical literature of the first century. And so, yeah, we're going to look at a little bit more at some stuff of of Suetonius and Josephus and um, a lot of pagan work and try to see what we can find out that might lead us to a historical Jesus or perhaps a celestial Jesus. And then we again, again, at the end of the day, make our own decision. So, hey, everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for hopping on to the show and tuning in. And I see a lot of you guys are sharing it with friends because the very first three episodes, as well as the trailer of season one, I mean, we're already over over a couple thousand just on those particular episodes of people that are listening. So every single day, there's like a good, I don't know, there's about a good 25 to 30 new listeners every single day in the first three or so episodes. And they are hanging on there very slowly and tr- you know, trickling all the way through and making their way into season two. So it's pretty exciting to watch. And we are on the road to 10,000 downloads. We're probably only about three, um, maybe about three weeks away from that particular goal. And then I don't know, I need to have some sort of um, celebration, some sort of party when we, excuse me, when we hit that 10,000. So um, anyway, hey you guys, have a fantastic 4th of July weekend. It's only Wednesday, but man, I'm super excited. But um, all right, wherever you guys are that are not celebrating the 4th of July, enjoy your, enjoy your lovely weekend. Everybody take care. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.